Hey, what's on your mind? That robot, did we seem similar to you? Of course not. No, I don't mean physically. Just what then? Well, I guess cyborgs like myself have a tendency to be paranoid about our origins. Sometimes I suspect I'm not who I think I am. Like maybe I died a long time ago and somebody took my brain and stuck it in this body. Maybe there never was a real me in the first place and I'm completely synthetic like that thing. You've got human brain cells in that titanium shell of yours. You're treated like other humans, so stop with the angst. But that's just it. That's the only thing that makes me feel human. The way I'm treated. I mean, who knows what's inside our heads? Have you ever seen your own brain? It sounds to me like you're doubting your own ghost. What if a cyberbrain could possibly generate its own ghost, create a soul all by itself? And if it did, just what would be the importance of being human then? That's bullshit. You know you're dying to see what's inside of that thing, aren't you? And I can't stop you. Neither of us has any idea what's inside there. Just be careful. Hello, comrades. It's episode 61 of This Machine Kills. I'm Jathan, joined by Ed and producer Jeremy, as always. For the free episode, we hit you guys with a really great discussion uh, with Liv Agar, really talking about, like, you know, Deleuze's theory around the society of control, talking about these transitions of different forms of power in society, uh, you know, really trying to break down what in many ways is, is, is a really, you know, kind of complex and esoteric theory, but is like hyper relevant uh, for understanding technopolitics, for understanding smart systems, all of this shit. So what we thought we would do with the premium episode is rather than like hit you guys with, a, with another like big theory from a big thinker, uh, there, there's also like some, uh, a really relevant concept and, and topic that we wanted to just spend some time discussing, right? Like, like we talked about it before, you know, peppered throughout various episodes, but we really wanted to like focus on this question of labor, but particularly how lab like labor as it applies to how work is done in and hidden by like AI and automation systems, right? You know, we're constantly hearing shit about like, this thing is artificial intelligence, this thing is automated, but we know, good Team K listeners, especially you, our comrade subscribers, know that there's all kinds of fucking people hidden within these machines, thrown into the gears of these machines, being crunched up. I'm thinking of uh, that like really famous scene from Charlie Chaplin's Modern Times, uh, which is, you know, it's a fucking silent movie from like the 20s or 30s or whatever, but it's fucking good. And it's, it's, I, I would highly recommend it's on YouTube. I would highly recommend just like watching it, just have it on while you're like listening to a podcast, maybe TMK, because it's silent. So you can do that. Right. Uh, <laughs> like the way that he, this scene in, in modern times, Charlie Chaplin is working in an industrial factory, and it's really about the ways in which like, he's turned into a robot through the machinery and through management kind of like constantly doing speed ups uh monitoring him right it's all this taylorism shit and there's a scene in the movie where he's actually like pulled into the gears of this giant machine and you see him like just getting like pushed through and crunched by these cogs and these gears kind of like rolling over his body and i fucking love that because it's like 
that's a really great visual metaphor for the ways in which like these machines suck people into them, but then hide all of that labor, all of that work and all that misery that happens that actually makes the thing do what, what it's meant to do. That actually makes it work in some way. Right. You know, I like to think of it as like a sacrifice, you know, where it's just certain people are being offered up. They're being offered up uh, to stabilize the system, to make it appear smart, to provide convenience, to in one way or another make, you know, the status quo move along smoothly so the world doesn't end. I mean, the world's not going to end if the invisible ghost labor ends, but this specific world, which, you know, provides a certain amount of convenience and like this or that personal good or service and, you know, uh, is mainly mediated by gig work, you know, digital platforms and targeted, you know, targeted surveillance, like that world would collapse. And whether or not we want that world to collapse doesn't really matter in the the decision-making behind the political economy of how to construct and how to preserve the world. It's all about like whether the people who benefit from it, right? You know, tech investors, billionaires, uh, CEOs, you know, sometimes regulators and so on and so forth benefit from it and whether or not they can figure out some way to convince us to like, you know, come along with the sacrifice of these skills workers. All all the people on our enemies list. Right. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) The top three thousand of them. <laughs> <laughs> I love this. I, I love this 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 way of talking about it as a sacrifice because that really is what it is, right? Like it's it's a sacrifice, and also because it's like it happens through this mystification, right? There's a kind of like magical element, like you know, your food delivery app just magically brings you the food, right? You click a couple buttons on it, and it just brings you the food. Uh, you you order something from Amazon one or two days later it just magically appears at your door right like man like th- th- this shit is like magic you know it's that famous um quote by uh andrew c clark you know the sci-fi writer who was like any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic and i hear so many people uh talk about it in this way like there's this this guy at the mit media lab i'm blanking on his name but it really doesn't matter but he wrote this book called enchanted objects and it's it's like his ode to the internet of things uh about how these things are actually like they're like these magical enchantments that give us like superpowers and they cast spells over our lives that improve our lives and 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 i hate that way of talking about these technologies as like magical enchantments or things that like give us superpowers like it's fucking fantasia right like we're just mickey mouse dancing around with brooms and shit right waving our magic wands as jeremy is doing in the in the video chat right now and i hate that because it is a way of mystifying all of the inputs, all of the labor and the materials, but also all of the outputs, all of the externalities and consequences that 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 make these things appear like magic. It's this fucking Disneyfication of technology. There's this really nice point that George Orwell makes in preface, in an, in a preface to an older edition of Animal Farm, where he talks about how it just doesn't suit 
um, you know, he's talking about the Soviet Union, but it doesn't suit, you know, elites in, in Western countries to just say certain things that are truisms about the system because it undermines the legitimacy of it. And I think about how, you know, in our political economy, it doesn't suit and gets annoying and there are ways to get people and discourage them from constantly saying like, okay, like all of our technical devices are built on mass misery and suffering and slavery at pain of death and, and dismemberment and, you know, disfigurement in mines, in uh, factories, in uh, the, you know, the pools of sludge and toxic waste that are byproducts of the rare earth metal mining. You know, all of this we, is stuff that we know and is like an unappealing narrative to constantly hammer in. And so a lot of energy goes into talking about how, you know, the mystical elements, like, look, you know, let's not talk about that. Let's talk about the smart city. You know, let's talk about the, the wonderful things that we can do with uh, these, you know, products of uh, death and suffering. We can make your fridge talk to you. You know, we can make your fridge talk to your toaster. We can lock you out of them if you try to modify the, uh, the hardware on the underlying level, right? But it's just, you know, like, the mystification of it makes it fun because the alternative is like to talk about how it's actually like a massive spinning wheel of death that a lot of people are implicated in um, for one reason or another. You know, not so much like the the move then is to stop consuming, right? But that it makes it that much harder to undermine the system and to figure out alternatives if it's never even thought about in the first place. And all we're talking about as you know the culture encourages us to do is like how fantastical our tech can be can we shave off like 90 percent of your daily commuters can we shave off 95 percent of it can we reduce car ownership or can we you know integrate it into like a, a system of private you know on-demand ride hails can we you know give you two-day shipping or can we give you one-day shipping you know stuff like that instead of like how do we just make an ecosystem or uh, or social system and a political system that doesn't require a priori like hordes of people that be killed or sacrificed or offered up i mean I, I feel like this is this gets us nicely to the kind of like concepts that we wanted to talk about as well right so because it's it's not new it's not like a new feature of capitalism uh that like you know machineries and systems and technologies uh not only like technologies and in, in in the kind of like mechanical sense but also in this like like bureaucratic and organizational sense, right? Like something like Amazon, right? Like like the Amazon warehouse logistics system. Yeah, it's a technology and there's a lot of technology involved in those warehouses, but like the real technology of mystification there is, is the organization of logistics, the way that it's designed to hide all of the, the human misery that goes into making it work. Once we peel back that layer of mystification and we actually like look into the black box of the Amazon warehouse and see the people uh, being like tortured inside it, right? Then all of a sudden we're like, oh shit, like th this, this, this is, this is kind of bad. Uh, not, not really into this. Um, you know, Amazon is suddenly not the most trusted institution in the United States like it was even a few years ago. What that shows us is that all of that work into mystifying the human inputs does a lot of ideological labor for capital, for these companies. I feel like this is becoming more clear to people now, but it's not something that is just hasn't been clear before. People are just kind of like waking up to it. They're kind of realizing what's going on. I'm thinking in particular 
of, of an essay I wrote a, a few years ago, you know, way back in 2018, oh, <laughs> eons ago, a different time period, a different epoch in human history. We had a different <laughs> pandemic that we were worrying, uh, worrying about, which was none, you know. Different time, different time. Different time. Uh, but so, like, I wrote this essay for Real Life Magazine called Potemkin AI, talking about the ways in which, like, artificial intelligence systems are, for the most part, a Potemkin village, right? It's like, it's this facade. AI is a facade that's put up to make us think, like, wow, this thing is so advanced, it's so intelligent, it's so automated, it's it's doing all this stuff without people. Uh, but, but we have to realize that like what that does and what this term Potemkin AI is meant to be is, is this kind of like analytical label to help us understand the actually existing practices and promises of the technology sector and the ways that the condition and, and the conditions of workers that make these systems actually function, right? Like we have to we have to take away that Potemkin facade, that village that was erected there to fool us, right? It is meant to fool us into thinking that this thing is is AI. When in, in reality, it's just it's supposedly AI. It's AI as a marketing ploy. I like this, you know, I, I like start my essay with this metaphor of, um, or not a metaphor, but rather like a historical story of uh, the Mechanical Turk, it, we, we, which was, you know, for people not aware, the Mechanical Turk was this, you know, 18th century contraption that was meant to, you know, it was, it was chess playing. It was like a really early example of supposedly like AI, uh, like a kind of foregoer of like, you know, Google's AlphaGo or IBM's Deep Blue, right? These like like AI systems that can play these really tough games like chess or Go to, you know, grandmaster levels. This has been a kind of like a broken promise of technology for hundreds of years. You know, the the Mechanical Turk was this like wooden cabinet behind with you know and and in this wooden cabinet was this like life-sized automaton it was this figure of a of a man carved of wood dressed in these uh uh really ornate robes you know really like a, a very like stereotypical um and racist uh conception of the turk right this kind I mean, of we like, love racism right that's what has pushed technology further and further over the ages yeah I mean, <laughs> right like we can see the racism built into this mechanical turk that was you know dressed up in the costume of a of a quote-unquote oriental sor uh, sorcerer right mm. so there you go you see the magical mm. aspect there but also the orientalism um aspect already like you know in the 18th century 1700s like already we're seeing these tropes that are just like damn this is really fucking familiar <laughs> yeah <laughs> i wonder where they got this from <laughs> Yeah, they haven't broken these tropes at all. It's like a proto Zoltan from the movie Big, you know, with those little like penny arcade machines. It's like uh, put a penny in and it tells your dumb fortune and puts it on a card. I that remember is exactly when I was a kid. When, right. I remember when I was a kid, they had a, and Jathan, you might remember these too, but they would have those little like touring fairs that would come into town for like the Crawfish Festival and shit like that. And they'd always have the sideshow and you pay like a couple of dollars to go in and you know, they'd always have some shit like 
lizard man or the headless woman scared the shit out of me when I was 10 years old. And all it was, was a little like robot that would move its fingers and then cross its legs of a woman with no head. That shit terrified me, man. (laughs) You can only imagine, you can only imagine how these like kids at sea and just like freak the fuck out. That's, that's, that's what it is. Yeah. So you come up with a new invention. It's incredibly fucking racist. It scares the living shit out of the children who go on to be incredibly racist, make technology incredibly fucking racist, scares the shit out of the children who go on to make technology that's incredibly racist, scares the shit out of and so on and so forth. Right. That's how progress happens. Yeah. And, and, and uh, I mean, I feel like the, uh, the example of the original mechanical Turk, you know, invented by this uh, Hungarian inventor named Wolfgang von Kimplin, which, I mean, come on, (laughs) come on. (laughs) He was touring around this mechanical Turk all around Europe and the United States, holding exhibition matches, uh, even, you know, played an exhibition against Napoleon Bonaparte, you know, Um. all, all the while, you know, and the whole purpose of this like fucking like you know sideshow circus charade was to to try to show this is actually uh an automaton a robot operating on its own accord that's what he would say constantly and he would do even things like you know like a stage magician to try to prove that there is no trickery happening he would open up this wooden cabinet um, before every exhibition and show all the spectators this like dense tangle of gears and wheels and levers right like trying to overwhelm people through this like mechanical complexity by displaying it to them and being like this is beyond your comprehension but in reality right of course the mechanical turk was not some like super advanced ancient ai you know robot it was all an illusion it was a magic trick because how did it actually work? And it did work, right? It did work in the sense that like it did play chess and it played chess extremely well. How did it work? Well, inside of it uh, was actually a human chess master who was like hidden behind this dense tangle of fake machinery um, and was just using like magnets and levers to operate the, the chess pieces and play chess. The whole point here was that like this complex mechanical system that Kimplin had invented and was like showing people was all meant to distract their attention away from how this automaton really worked, which is human labor, right? Like, like right. a human intellectual labor of of a person literally stuffed inside of the machine. <laughs> There's no ghost in the shell. There's just humans in the machine, right? Like There's humans on top of humans on top of humans. Yeah, that's really you know it's they got it even back then. It's funny to see like it still has not really changed, right? I mean, there's even a Turk system a platform today right the amazon amazon's uh, mechanical turk Turk took the name from this thing isn't that i mean that's uh irony is is always yeah irony's dead bezos is a visionary i mean we should uh salute the outgoing ceo and uh and it and it's really fascinating how even there too amazon turk also is it feels even more of a like a what's the word for it it just feels more like a farce, I guess, because it's like 
open hand or maybe self-aware. It's like openly being like, you know, look, we just like give these tasks to people for them to do. Everybody knows that that system is going on and that's what it uh, does, but it's also powering the ability of services that then go and say, no, we have AI that does that shit. And it's like, no, you don't motherfucker. You're using Turk. (laughs) Yeah. You don't have AI. You have people. I mean, you know, we mentioned Amazon's mechanical Turk system, which is this like, yeah, this like crowd work platform that Amazon created, you know, ages ago. And Bezos has even called it humans as a service or artificial, Uh artificial intelligence, right? Like those are the names that he has given to this mechanical Turk system, like, like fully aware, just like fully like mask off being like, I'm a magician and I'm going to let you in on the secret. What other people don't let us in on the secret like you know amazon's or rather bezos is taking away the mask being like yeah i mean there's people right like this is artificial artificial intelligence it's humans as a service but what we don't know and what we don't hear is the fucking like myriad just the infinite endless list of supposedly ai startups uh that are claiming their technology is artificial intelligence when in reality it's being powered by and trained by uh, a lot of times Amazon Mechanical Turk, right? It's being powered and trained by these like this like vast, um, like deterritorialized, uh, well, supposedly deterritorialized, allegedly, uh, yeah, a- array of human labor. When in reality, it's not deterritorialized because it's like uh, a lot of it is being outsourced to these locations like like India, right, or like the Philippines. But also, there's also a lot of like people in Europe and the U.S. that work on Amazon Mechanical Turk um, and get paid like you know piecemeal wages for doing it, right? But like th- that is the that is the the power system, right? It's this like it's trying to live up to this dream of some kind of um, you know infinite energy system that can power all of these advanced technologies. In reality, the shit is soylent green, right? The AI right. is made of people. The AI is made of people. <laughs> Wasn't that the whole point behind uh, 5G infrastructure to be able to have better communication with all these uh, quote unquote AI devices that not just surveillance, but or drones, but eventually AI that's like the final step, right? Oh, yeah. The idea was that, yeah, like you have so, you have high-speed network that will allow the communication between so many devices that finally we can have a real-time responsive intelligent system rise out and be aware you know and take care of itself or be deployed to do other shit yeah it's just like for hundreds of years we've been seeing like like one promise Mm -hmm. after another that like this will actually allow ai or robots to become real to become actually exist and become more than just like you know marketing hype in some fucking like advertising material or some like keynote by steve jobs or whatever the fuck right like i feel like potemkin ai is a is a key concept now that we have to all be like super aware of and and applying constantly right like anytime that we see something that claims to be artificial intelligence or claims to be automated uh in some way we have to think like am i just being like toured through a potemkin village like what's behind the facade of this like beautiful village uh oh shit it's actually just like yeah just 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 a fucking veneer oh shit it's just slavery 
yeah, it's just a veneer over human labor, right? And I feel like it's wild because this is clearly a concept whose time has come. Um, and it came years ago because like literally the same week that my essay on Potemkin AI was published, um, Astra Taylor, who, you know, just a, a fantastic author, activist, writing on these things, doing a lot of work on labor and technology and debt and finance. But the same, literally the same week as my essay was published in Real Life Magazine, she had an essay come out in Logic Magazine called uh, The Automation Charade, where she coins this term photomation or uh, faux automation, photomation. It doesn't roll off the tongue very well in speaking, but looks really <laughs> good in writing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so she had this this like super complimentary idea as well, where she says in her essay, quote, in its more harmless form, photomation is merely a marketing ploy, a way to make pointless products seem cutting edge. The gap between advertising copy and reality can be risable, but photomation also has a more nefarious purpose. It reinforces the perception that work has no value if it is unpaid and acclimates us to the idea that one day we won't be needed. And she gives a lot of really great examples in there, drawing in particular from a great line of socialist feminist thinkers like the historian Ruth Schwartz Cohen, um, like the theorist Sylvia Federici. Right. Like drawing on there, she has a really a lot of great examples um, looking at the way in which these like faux automated technologies are also used as cudgels. Right. To like threaten human labor, to try to like, you know, prevent them from asking for more, because if they ask for more, the robots are going to come and take their job. Right. She's talking she she talks about the way in which like McDonald's started using these basically iPads, right? These like screens where you can go and like place your own order, right? And the idea there is like, you don't have to hire as many people because there's no one there actually taking your order. You're just putting it in on a kiosk. And she she pulls in, just, just it's just so perfect. She uses an example of around this time, and this was all as a way to fight against the fight for 15, right? Basically right. being like, you want more wages you want a 15 dollar an hour minimum wage robots don't ask for wages and if you you start getting uppity and you start thinking you deserve more you lowly uh fast food workers then we're just going to replace you with robots and automation and she quotes that the employment policies institute which is a, which is a conservative think tank took out a full page ad in the wall street journal driving home this message that like you food service workers need to be thankful for what you have. So in this ad, they say, quote, today's union organized protest against fast food restaurants aren't a battle against management. They're a battle against technology faced with a $15 an hour wage mandate Restaurants have to reduce the cost of service in order to maintain the low prices customers demand. That means fewer entry-level jobs and more automated alternatives, even in the kitchen. Look, they have they make billions of dollars. They need to make tens of billions of dollars. And, they, and the only thing that's standing between them, 
making tens of billion dollars and then making billions is your stupid fucking greedy ass. That's what it is. <laughs> asking for a, <laughs> asking for a raise, a livable wage. Ridiculous. Yeah, and, and the way that threat of automation here is used as a cudgel. But of course, mm-hmm. we know that these things are not really automated, right? Like there's still a lot of people working in the kitchen, flipping those burgers, uh, frying up the chicken nuggets and the fries, right? Like, like that is still necessary labor. No, that, that, that's like also a really interesting thing to think about how like in a, in a workplace, it's, you know, think of it as like a, like as a 3D object, right? With all these nodes connecting it into a system so that it works, right? And it's interesting that like they can try to replace like two or three nodes and say we're automating it, right? But you're not really automating it. How much labor, as, you, as we've been talking about, goes into like delivering and goes into stocking and goes into maintaining the facilities and goes into turning like raw materials into a good or a service that can then be provided to the customer or querying them for if they need help or solving uh, any complaints that come up in the process or doing quality checks or quality assurance. It's like every part of the process requires so much human labor. It's ridiculous to say because you put a machine at the endpoint, the whole thing is automated. And it feels like an incredibly also lazy move by commentators to say like they're automating the jobs when it's like the vast majority of the system is not automated. It's human labor and only like two or three superficial nodes in the system, like, you know, McDonald's are being automated in these instances, right? If you put a kiosk in the store, it is ridiculous to say that the store is automated. Is the kiosk going to cook the food? Like you were saying, is it going to take out the trash? Is it going to clean the facilities? No, fuck no, of course not. No, no. Yeah, it's it's all part of this mystification aspect. My question is, is who's going to fix the fucking robots? They can't keep their ice cream machines working. <laughs> I mean, that goes into like this whole other thing as well, right? There's all this labor required even to keep the magic running, right? To keep the keep, to keep the theme park ride going. There's all this labor involved in maintaining and fixing the robots. Again, you know, we talked about at the beginning that like this mystification of labor, this alienation of labor, this fetishization of objects and commodities and machinery right, as a way to like take them outside of these processes and social relations of labor and capital and inputs and outputs is not old but what we do have is the real innovation here is an advancement in the techniques for hiding that for 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 mm-hmm. doing alienation for doing that fetishization i mean i also want to give a shout out to right like my essay on potemkin ai astra's essay on photomation right coming out you know years ago shortly after in 2018 and then like you know that next year in 2019 there were two great books that came out one called ghost work by mary gray and siddharth siri and the other one called behind the screen um, by sarah roberts like both of these books were also really focusing on uh this like in the invisible workers the ghost workers um, behind like social media content moderation, uh, behind all of you know these technologies of of AI, this the the seamless frictionless operation of 
internet services, right? Like there, there's so much great work that was all that all came out around the same time on this topic, but seemingly like we still get fooled again and again and again by these promises that autonomous vehicles are just three years away, right? Superpowered general AI is just right on the horizon, right? Like the content moderation of in social media, right? Oh, that's all that's all automated, right? It's like really sophisticated algorithms. Like, no, motherfucker. The the algorithm here is an office building full of low-waged workers in the Philippines that do like all the content right. moderation for Facebook and Twitter and, and shit like that. This also gets to a point that, you know, I think about in Yevgeny Morozov's work about how, you know, some of the other reasons that it is hard for us to not keep getting fooled by it is also because the educate the, the process to learn about these things, frankly, does require a lot of time and energy, right? And in familiarizing yourself with the history of something and the politics of it and the economics of it, the geopolitics and the, the narratives that we've all spent time learning or becoming familiar with, as well as the narratives that these companies feed us, have nothing to do with any of those things, right? And so it is one thing to like break out of that propaganda, and then another thing to constantly re-defend yourself, you know, and do intellectual self-defense when like the the impetus is not to do that. And even in the best of times, right? Even in the best of times when coverage and analysis is critical, technology of labor uh, or business, not labor. But, you know, even when there's critical analysis going on, it's still fighting an uphill battle, right? Because it's still piecemeal. You know, I have a friend, um, you know, who works in tech and is like, you know, I've talked with a bit about who's skeptical that there should be, for example, coverage of tech is a separate is a separate category right in reporting and this is similar i think to like work by you know kqed reporter sam harnett who's skeptical of like mm-hmm. this categorization because the idea there is like that tech is some this thing in of itself that's different instead of just like a you know a type of business that kind of found a little bit uh, a different way to pitch itself to the public and pitch itself to politicians and pitch itself to regulators and that it's this trans-historical force, right? This, this force that we, we are discovering and we're stumbling upon and we have to harness uh, to progress towards history and that it's not like every other thing in society when it is. You know, it's still formed by politics. It's still formed by history. It's still formed by social relations. It's still formed by economics. But, you know, so much of what we're taught and trained and, and familiar with and speaking in terms of ignores all of that, right? We're told that, you know, People start assigning to technology inherent traits, right? It's it's meant to progress. It's meant to develop. It's meant to democratize and all these things. It's meant to make labor easier, leisure more likely. When in reality, it's just a, you know, as, as we've all talked about, as the people who've influenced us all talk about, it is a, a technical systems are political and they're extensions of like, you know, the, the entities and the groups that deploy them. And in our society, the groups that deploy them, you know, the capitalists are constantly concerned with how to use them to advance the accumulation of capital, right? And to extract more and more value from you as a worker, and also to limit the autonomy that you have in a workplace and to de-democratize them, as well as the rest of the society and to privatize it as well. And like these are the things that structure the way that technology is deployed and poison the way that we think about it and makes it very, very, very difficult to then actually like not fall for these tricks all the time. Because it really, like if you step, if you step back and you look at it, it is a little silly. 
that we keep falling for the same shit every few years, right? There's a little city that Uber, for example, is able to say like for for 12 years that in three years it'll be profitable and in three years we'll have flying cars and in three years we'll have, you know, robot taxis. It is a little ridiculous that, you know, we can allow companies to lie to our faces about what they are doing or what they aren't doing and rationalize it as like some, you know, bullshit. You know, there are too many examples to give and 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 that's a consequence of how this whole entire landscape is formed and how hard it is to fight against it by yourself, but especially when you don't have institutions that like help you do it, right? Which is also not to say that like the media is un- incapable of doing it, but just like the political economy of mass media and the capitalist system is such that it's going to be, you know, it's not always going to be safe. <laughs> it's not always going to be ringing that bell. It's not all going to be labor coverage, right? It's not all going to be focused on workers. It's not all going to be focused on the consequences of, you know, technical systems being deployed politically. A lot of the time, it's going to be press. You know, it's going to be PR. It's going to be a fluff piece. It's going to be profiles. It's going to be access stuff. It's going to be things that complicate and muddy the waters of analysis. So Trash Future just released a really great episode uh, building on a report by Hindenburg Research, friend of the show. You might remember <laughs> them from our uh, us talking through their report on Clover Health and the King of SPACs, Chamath Palihapitiya. Uh, but but the Hindenburg uh, Research just recently re- released another great report uncovering um, Lordstown Motors, which was this like supposedly electric car, uh, electric vehicle, um, and electric truck manufacturer. And their report released, uh, you know, uncovered, uh, surprise, surprise, that it's all just a big sham. It's a big scam. It's fucking fake, right? Like, love it. <laughs> and and, and, and uh, they talked about in Trash Future that like Lordstown Motors had released these, um, you know, promotional videos showing it's like super automated factory, you know, making making vehicles, making cars, right? Like they're they're rolling off the production line. In reality, Lordstown Motors has only produced one prototype. Um, that's the only thing it has produced. And this video that the uh, that Hindenburg talks about and Trash Future talks about it was all just theater. It, it, uh, the the robots were programmed to be like moving around and looking like they were doing something. And in reality, they weren't doing anything. They were not doing any work. It was fucking Chuck E. Cheese. It was oh some fucking God. Chuck E. Cheese automaton shit. That's crazy. That's a crazy <laughs> level of fraud. <laughs> oh Such a crazy level of fraud. And and But it's like rampant, right? It's that rampant kind of like, what matters here is we need to put on a, a a theater of production. We need to put on a theater of of accumulation. We've reached this point in capitalism where production of stuff is no longer the end. It's no longer the goal. It's not what capitalism does anymore. What capitalism does is it's a system built on speculation. It's all about the production of expectations that certain things will be materialized, right? Like that, that is all that 
you know, this, this fucking spectacle of capitalism that we exist in now is now just focused on the production of expectations. It reminds me of that like old marketing slogan, except no imitations. Right. But in reality, something like Potemkin AI is an ideological project meant to convince us, the public, that we should only accept only imitations, right? Like, right. It's also really interesting because it puts technological development on a holding pattern, right? To focus on these things that are not materializing yet is to say, look, like hold the horses. We are going to realize the specific form of a good or a service that extends like the, the conditions as they are right now. So you have to hold and you have to wait and you have to keep pouring resources and keep consuming and keep producing in this pattern and not explore any alternatives. So in one way, it is also like bullshit to keep their own thing going, but also to prevent like genuinely, you know, socially, socially useful forms of production uh, or imagination uh, of what that might look like from happening. If you keep saying, or if you were to be honest and say, you know, we would love a flying car so that we could operate at zero you know, profit or at zero cost so that we could then operate at pure profit. But we can't do that unless you support us with like, you know, 15, 20 billion dollars in funding. Um, then you might ask, why the fuck do I want to give you that 15 or 20 billion? Why don't I just reinvest it in something else that might be socially useful? Right. <laughs> yeah. And that doesn't need a, a, you know, a parasite, you know, a venture capital parasite at the other end, like, you know, pitching. And that's exactly what it does. Right. Like, it's not only that it's like selling us these fucking like, you know, producing these expectations and selling us on speculation. You've nailed it here. Ed. It's it's monopolizing investment. It's monopolizing all of that venture capital, um, all of the, the risk, right? The investment of taking a risk on something real, something socially beneficial. Yeah, now it's like, oh, we, well, we can't afford to um, actually, you know, build up a system of socially beneficial and socially useful production because we're too busy spending billions and billions and billions of dollars on producing speculation, uh, on selling expectations, on just doing fucking fantasy, right? That's that's all we're doing, right? We're, we're just, it's financial capitalism, again, is just fucking taking the like, the Disney movie studio model of uh, uh, we're not going to actually make anything real. We're just going to make some movie magic. And, that, and that's all you get. That's all you get. You get some movie magic. You get some spectacle to distract you from the hordes of uh, the, the, the army of labor that is actually making these things work. Not even work that well, if we're being honest, right? right. Not even work that well. <laughs> Look, if you disrupt that system, then civilization is going to collapse, right? If yeah. you don't allow, allow us to rob the shit out of the public treasuries, uh, things won't continue smoothly. And and I think wrapping or going back in a circle, you know, to the earlier point, right? This also ends up being like all of this ends up being an extended argument or part of an extended way of distracting people from like the root thing, which is how many people have to die or get maimed were hurt or enslaved so that all of this can happen in the first place. We're usually 
pitch these things and consumer benefits or the value that it brings to the consumer in the form of getting rid of traffic, right? In the form of getting rid of wait times, in the form of getting rid of, you know, the risk of your package being stolen, this or that, whatever. And not in like the externalized costs that are pushed onto everyone else through loopholes and labor law and antitrust law, right? It's through the loopholes that the, the same loopholes that allow Amazon to push its workers to the bone so that it can get you one day, two day shipping are the same loopholes that externalize those costs onto the drivers so that they have to piss in bottles, so that they have to drive above the speed limit, so that they have to risk getting hurt, so that they have to risk, you know, you know, urinating and defecating on themselves on the job, uh, risk, uh, you know, starving or losing their homes or falling behind on bills because of subminimum wages. The same uh, loopholes, right, that allow for wait times to be low when you order goods and services are the same ones that allow those workers to be exploited. But when we're talking about the benefit, we only talk about, uh, you know, what the consumer receives, not like what the worker is actually being uh, forced to deal with. And I think that, you know, in most instances, when you actually look at that, it outweighs, I would argue, you know, the actual benefits of the consumer. How does it make sense that in a system where the vast majority of the workers are making below the minimum wage, that the benefit is good to the consumer? Actually, the real benefit is to the investors, right? And to the corporations, uh, to the corporations and the investors that benefit from this product being offered, and that benefit from the regulations being changed to allow this product or service, you know, to to be offered and expanded, and the changes in the regulatory environment that allow other investments they might have to flourish. That's the real benefit, not to the consumer. We talked about Mechanical Turk earlier. I also I want to shout out the really great work by Lily Arani, um, who, is, who has long been doing critical activist scholarship on Mechanical Turk. And she writes in, in, a, in a great essay where she, you know, talks about how Mechanical Turk mask the, the, the workers uh, in in the system, in the you know that actually make these AI systems operate, that make these smart technologies operate, um, by making them appear to just be another part of a soulless system. I think that's a key point here, right? That it's it's a soulless system. You know, you, who needs workers? Don't need autonomy if they don't exist, right? We're we're doing erasure here. We're depriving them of a soul. Um, and therefore, we don't have to think about these questions of autonomy and dignity. And she writes um, in, in an essay that we'll throw in the episode description, quote, by rendering the requisition of labor technical and infrastructural, Mechanical Turk limits the visibility of workers, rendering them as a tool to be employed by the intentional and expressive hand of the programmer. This gets to something exactly what we've been talking about as well, right? That like the, when we think about technopolitics, we have to think about whose values and interests, whose desires, whose dreams are being extended through and materialized by these technologies. And what she talks about is that the way in which these um, the platform of Mechanical Turk and its interfaces are purposely designed in a way to allow employers to command people as though they were simply operating a mindless machine. Like you might know in the abstract that it's actually people doing the work, but it, it induces you to treat those people as robots, as automaton, as, you know, to go back to the original, uh, like the etymology of the word robot, right? It comes from a Czech word, robata, which means slave. 
Right. I mean, it, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean that's what that's what this Potemkin AI, this photomation, this ghost work, right? Like that's what this is designed to do. Is it not only provides AI with this like alibi, right? Like you just fake it till you make it, right? Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain, the Wizard of Oz, the great and powerful Oz. Pay, you know, fake it till you make it. It provides you with this alibi until you can actually do something like that approximates what you claim you can do well at the same time giving you know giving capital just like this puppet mastery control over this dispersed planetary pool of labor i think also you know thinking of how some people may recoil when it's you know described as slavery right but i mean there really is no other way to you know talk about it if we are going to be serious like you know the way that a lot of these platforms operate and the way that they organize labor and the way that they discipline workers and the way that they expect them to operate, right, is is hard to say that is there's any free will that comes into this conversation, right? Whether it's, you know, as Vina Duval talks about, right, peace work, and as she talked with us about, you know, how the ways in which these platforms can take the work that uh, people do and have them sit idly by so that they can only accept pieces of it because, to accept the piece of it puts them in position where they're unable to contest any of the terms in which they're assigned the work, but also leaves them more vulnerable waiting for more work, right? And that the waiting around and the vulnerability are designs that are, are designs of are parts of a system that is designed that way for no other reason than to reduce the cost for the system so that it can, you know, um, do that in mass for other people and reduce the wait times that customers might have waiting for uh, work that is being assigned in peace to someone to be done for their own benefit, right? You know, so there's that, there's the surveillance that these algorithms might operate on. Uh, There's the surveillance that they use to uh, punish workers if they're doing something that might in one way or another be construed as organizing or construed as resting or construed as anything other than what they tell you explicitly to do, right? You're working in every essence or in every level of this work without any sort of free will and any act of uh, resistance, any act of independence, any act of self-motivated action gets punished, right? And is comes at the cost of your wages, comes at the cost of your autonomy, comes at the cost of your ability to, to make ends meet. So you don't do it. It's hard to see a system like this, whether it's the, the Turk system, whether it's a gig, any gig work platform, and say that that is not you know wage slavery, right? In the worst sense, not just as a slogan that we might deploy against like you know wage labor is slavery because it, you're doing it at threat of starvation, but that these people are literally doing it at the threat of starvation, right? Mm-hmm. That they're being reminded every day in multiple ways that they have no say in this. You know, me and you, we have autonomy in our work conditions to an extent, right? Uh, if you're on a gig platform, you don't have any of that. You're interfacing with an algorithm that is uh, unforgiving and cruel. Your work is assigned blindly in most times. You have little to no say over the price at which you accept or the expenses in which you have to deal with or any of that, right? Whereas we do. It makes no sense to see a situation like that and not call it yeah, the slavery, right? Or wage slavery at the very least. And I mean, to that point as well, one of the things, you know, Potemkin AI or Photomation, right, these systems like Mechanical Turk, what they do is they like, you know, they talk about this, this like click work, right, as like menial labor, right? In the mm-hmm. sense that it's like, and we hear this, you know, with people talking about whether it's fast food workers 
Uber drivers, you know, DoorDash uh, deliverers, right? Like they're described as fucking like unskilled menial labor. Mm -hmm. What that does is it, it devalue it not only devalues this type of work, but devalues the people doing it. Right. It's right. saying you are not valuable. What you do is just, you know, a fucking robot could do your job. Well, a fucking mm. robot could not do my job because mm. I'm doing the job of a robot. Right. Like, right. right. Yeah. It, it, it's, it's a really insidious way to try to, on one hand, cut the legs out from underneath these workers, these people and the labor that they do, the labor they do that is necessary to then power what is held up as innovation, smart, intelligent, cognitive computing, right? Things that are at the highest echelons of human achievement. Uh, w there, there's a fucking dialectic here, right? That's the contradiction, is that the labor that's necessary to make these things work is degraded uh, as menial, as unskilled, but the products, the direct products of that labor are held up on a pedestal as the the apex of human achievement. Square that fucking circle for me. You know? mm -hmm. that, that, that's 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 the the mystification of capital. You know you deserve better, but there's always gonna be someone saying, no, this is what you're gonna get and you're gonna like it, because there's no other choice. When I worked Uber, you would have people that would just treat you like fucking garbage. The fact that you know, they they didn't respect what you were doing. It was like you were saying, they all just assume you're, you know, some uneducated asshole who couldn't find a job doing anything else. So whatever mistreatment you get, you deserve. This is this is your chosen profession. And for a lot of folks that do that, it's not a chosen profession. You know, you're kind of forced into it for exactly what you said, the, the need to fucking eat or pay your bills or, you know, put gas in your car to fucking go to work because... If you didn't work and you didn't put gas in your car, then you can't work. So you're stuck relying on a fucking platform app to feed you when it's not going to. And it's not going to help you regardless of what it says. Yeah. And the design of the apps are, are also like, like they're designed to pull us into this system of devaluing uh, labor as well, right? Like Astra and her essay talks about how like, you know, this is what she calls a, a a parable of labor and it's erasure in the in in the digital app, right? Where she's talking about how like, you know, she was at a restaurant waiting for her food and someone had a, you know, s another guy came up holding his app and was like, wow, like how did this app, t you know, know that my food was ready 20 minutes earlier than the scheduled pickup time? Um, and the woman behind the counter at this restaurant was like, it's because I, I, I text you. I told you that the that your food was ready, right? Like the app, right. the, the, I did that. And yeah. Mm -hmm. She talks about this quote. She says, the app in its eagerness to appear streamlined and just in time had simplified or, or had simply excised the relevant human party in this exchange. Hence, the satisfied customer could fantasize that his food had materialized thanks to the digital interface, as though some all-seeing robot was supervising the human workers as they put together his organic rice bowl. Yeah, you know, I think this also resonates, too, with some of the stuff we've been talking about, how startups and apps have become 
archetypes or ideals for po politics, right? This idea that everything should be as streamlined as it is on an app, smooth as an app, mediated through an app, or should make us feel like we just used an app, right? When in reality that the app is not even, even if it is as convenient as they say, which it isn't, right? Even if there, there's not, it's not clear to me why things, some things should just be stream. Why should everything be streamlined and convenient? You know, there is some value in things just not being uh, convenient and having and, and requiring some time to do them or, or being clunky or requiring human action, interaction and things that could break momentum or things that, could, you know, push you to, you know, stop a little bit. And it's only that this impetus for reducing the labor costs is what is driving convenient. It's not an, an elegance or streamlining, uh, right? It's not actually because it's a value in of itself. That's not why they're pursuing it. They're not pursuing it for like aesthetic reasons. They're not pursuing it because they just believe everything should be streamlined. They're pursuing it because it will reduce the cost of operation and increase their profits. And so we should be skeptical of anything that is being done for the purpose of profit because that doesn't, and more often than not, it's being done at, at other expenses, right? And in this case, it's like if everything is being done so that it can be streamlined and smooth, then it, 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 I think it has like a poisonous effect on the way that we think of organizing individuals themselves, right? That if something is not as easy and as quick as it can be on an app, then it's not worth doing. And that everything needs to be cut away at and reduced down to size until it is. Yeah, I mean, th this gets back to like our conversation with Aaron Thorpe where we were talking about convenience, right? Convenience as this like overriding ideology of, uh, of, of our smart society. Um, and, and, and exactly right. Like the point of convenience here, and it ties in directly to these concepts of Potemkin AI, is that convenience is meant to make us not ask any questions. Right, like just accept the convenient and frictionless service, uh, and and don't ask any questions about how this magic happened, about how your enchanted app actually works, and 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 you're exactly right as well, Ed. That it's like you know it gets back to to that point and a point you made earlier about the ways in which like these you know put the these these forms of doing production or, or speculation, these forms of doing AI and robotics and shit like that monopolizes the actual investment in other, other alternatives, other ways of doing these technologies, you know, like it, just what you were saying, like all of the attention and funding for AI is so garnered and monopolized by those who are just looking for a way to maximize their profits and secure their own power. We see and we are like like so so many uh, attempts to use AI as a tool for replacing human decisions, for exploiting human labor, for administering human life. These these applications of AI are just fucking like shoved down our throats so often that it becomes really easy to believe that those are simply the best or even natural applications, or, or even the only applications. The, the AI here is used as an alibi, right? It's used as this way of rationalizing these ways of applying the technology. In reality, though, it's, it's the Potemkin AI which serves as this placeholder. It's like a way of normalizing this attitude in advance, um, you know, getting us used to this is the way AI works or this is the way automation works. 
uh, until you know, three years from now and three years from tomorrow and so on, uh, the companies can actually make it work that way. And by the time they're able to do that, we've already become used to it. We've already accepted it because of these fucking like Potemkin AI systems that have kind of laid the pathway, laid that ideological groundwork years, decades in advance. Maybe, maybe they're onto something. Maybe we should have an app for uh, thinking about apps, right? An app that tells us which app design for uh, organizing politically and socially is the best app. We could, something we could look into, right? Crowdfund for something like that. Have a, ha- yeah, have the Potemkin AI app where you just like, you know, plug in a company or a service or a technology or something and, 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 and say, is this AI? And it says, <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not AI. Or yes, it is AI. But that, that, that's, that second answer will rarely come up. <laughs> and if it's not AI, then um, you get an option where you can ask, how do I make it look like AI? Right. Yeah, right. <laughs> How do I build the facade here uh, and, and ensure that nobody peeks behind the curtain? Right, please. <laughs> just just got to find the woman that did the voice for Mainframe on Cyber Chase. Oh, and uh, have her be oh, the voice of the app. <laughs> <laughs> have, her, have her be the voice of the app, and that would be the app that you would design it. That's a fucking deep TMK reference right there. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Yeah, we'll do that one day. We'll get her on. Well, I'll send her an email. Let's see what's up. This is another one of the concepts that we need to have in our conceptual toolbox, right? Uh, In thinking about, like, in critically studying and analyzing, understanding these technologies is this idea of, like, is this fake? Is this trickery? Is it just an illusion? Um, Because we're, we're fucking surrounded by... The, the trickery and the scams and schemes and speculation of technological and financial capitalism. Sometime in the future, we'll do an episode, another episode with Liv, focusing on um, Guy Debord uh, and the Society of the Spectacle, right? And thinking there of like, Debord in his book had this quote, you know, a very famous quote, but a very apt one. Where he says, quote, in societies dominated by modern conditions of production, life is presented as an immense accumulation of spectacles. Everything that was directly lived has receded into a representation. And that's exactly what we're talking about here, right? We're talking about this like immense accumulation of simulation, of spectacle, of peer representation. Um, telling you that it's real, asking you to suspend your disbelief and believe that it's actually magic, that it's actually happening. Uh, but in reality, it's not. It's just a fucking trick. It's another trick. Yeah, but maybe, maybe, maybe during the pandemic, we need tricks. Maybe we need to live a little, you know, and let the uh, corporate overlords lie to us and convince us that we actually do have AI, right? That we're type one Kardashian of uh, civilization, that we that an AGI is just around the corner, um, and that it might possibly 
if we close one eye and squint really hard, solve all our problems, if we give it billions of dollars, tens of billions of dollars, hundreds of billions, maybe trillions, <laughs> you know, who knows? They're not tricks, Ed, they're illusions. Right, no, I mean, <laughs> one man's illusion is another man's reality. Right. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Makes you think. Now we're now 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 on to part two where we talk about the matrix <laughs> and, the, <laughs> and the simulation machine. <laughs> yeah. Hey man, ignorance is bliss, right? Ignorance is bliss. Mm-hmm. As long as you're not the, the fucking person in the ignorance machine making it actually work. And you can just enjoy all the bliss that's produced from it. What what a what a nice position to be in. Uh good yeah, good, spe- good good simulation if you can get it. Um, <laughs> One of the best. Uh, I think we'll we'll bring to a close uh, this premium episode of This Machine Kills. Thank you, as always, for subscribing and listening. And uh, until next week, we hit you with more episodes constantly, turning them out. Until then, later. Adios.
Radio.